0: let's bow our heads in a word of prayer and prepare our hearts for the preaching of God's Word. Gracious Heavenly Father, we are thankful to You for Your wonderful love and grace shown toward us. We can sing with joy in our hearts knowing that we serve a King, we serve a Lord who is good, that we can take time to even reflect the condition of our own hearts toward You and to consider whether or not we have truly come to understand Your love and grace toward us. And so I do pray, Father, as we continue our worship, that as our hearts rejoice with one another, especially in consideration of Christmas time, that We would renew our minds and hearts together to worship you, to serve you, to know what a a wonderful Savior that we have. Please humble our hearts, make them receptive as your word goes forth, that we may be blessed by it. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, I invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Daniel. It is always, uh, what's the word, serendipitous, when you don't have to go to a different text for a particular uh, time of the year, whether that be uh, Resurrection Sunday or, in our case today, Christmas. I can just keep continuing through this uh, section of Scripture, a very important section of Scripture, because I do think it fits very well with the promises that we come to consider during Christmas time. We focus our attention on the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ, and that we now have, born in human flesh, born in a manger in Bethlehem, the embodiment, literally the embodiment of all of God's promises made toward his people. That indeed hope has dawned upon the world, and that there, even from that time forward, much more to see, much more to behold. Christmas, as special as it is, only offers us a glimpse, just a glimpse, of all that God has given to us in Christ. And yet, it had to begin somewhere. And so, we can look to even Daniel chapter 2 and consider the magnitude of God's promises. Because in Christmas, we consider the birth of the king. That is actually what is happening. A king is born. A king is born. And when we talk about kings, we also consider the nature of kingdoms. And that is where we find ourselves in the book of Daniel in chapter 2. We will consider over the next couple of weeks the real deal as it pertains to the kingdom. That is the kingdom of God, the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we see via this vision that was given to King Nebuchadnezzar, really the big picture that foretells us, foretells to us, God's redemptive plan in Christ and the subsequent growth of His kingdom. So, let us draw our attention to verse 34, verse 34. And of course, a little bit of context, we have been exploring this dream that Nebuchadnezzar has had, and we got into it uh, last time I was up here talking about the vision, and particularly the statue, this large, terrifying statue that King Nebuchadnezzar saw in his dream and, of course, his vision. And, of course, he calls Daniel in to not only tell him what the dream was, but he wants the interpretation of the dream as well. And so that's sort of the part that's under a lot of debate. What what do each of these kingdoms stand for? And, of course, when is all of this going to happen? And I tried to point you to the more important issue that it's more of what happens, how it happens, and why, not so much the when. There will never be any end of the debate as to when these things are going to take place. But I wanted to focus on the inevitability, the irresistible reality of it, and of course the cause for praise that God in Christ will subdue all earthly kingdoms. He will, he will rid the world of this old house and in Christ build a new house of which we are a part. We are these living stones built on the solid rock of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so even though we went through that text as a whole, I now want to turn our attention especially toward the most significant portion of this vision, one that I don't want to get lost in light of the, the, this greater narrative of the statue Because the statue is coming down, the rock strikes the metal and destroys the metal. And so let us focus our attention today on verses 34 and 35 and then 44 and 45. I think I got that right. So let's read. You continued looking until a stone was cut out without hands and it struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and crushed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed all at the same time and became like chaff from the summer threshing floor, and the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them was found. But the stone that struck the statue became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. Okay, that's the first mention of this stone cut out without hands that destroys the statue. Of course, this stone seems like we are to imagine this to be not a very big stone, but after it destroys the statue it is it is strong enough to take out this statue but it doesn't stay the same size it grows it becomes a great mountain that fills the whole earth okay that's the first thing we find out about it secondly if you want to go further down in this text starting at verse 44 It says, In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed, and that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put an end to all of these kingdoms, but it but it will itself endure forever. Inasmuch as you saw that a stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it crushed the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God has made known to the king what will take place in the future so the dream is true and its interpretation is trustworthy. So may God be blessed by the reading of His Word. And I want to spend this Lord's Day and then the next one or two talking about this stone cut out without hands that destroys the statue and then is set up to grow into a mountain that fills the entire earth. It is in this passage that we understand not the kingdom of God in a vague sense, but the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ in a specific sense. This is a vision telling us God's redemptive plan for the world, and it will come through His Son, and a a kingdom will be established, a kingdom that will not only put down all other kingdoms, but a kingdom that will never decline, a kingdom that will never end, a kingdom that will continue growing and will never be put to an end. And I would say this kingdom will grow to the extent that earth and heaven will be made one once again. As it was at one point in the Garden of Eden, the only difference being heaven and earth will be one in the sense that the heaven will come and conquer earth completely. Right? There will be no place in this world that is untouched by heaven. There will be no place in this world that is untouched, and I would even say untransformed, by Christ and His reign. And I believe that is what the stone is talking about, and the mountain. That's what it's talking about. And I I had this discussion with another brother this week that I don't think it's wise for us to look at the stone and the mountain and try to isolate it to one thing. It speaks of the grandeur of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. It speaks of Jesus. It speaks of His finished work and His death resurrection and His current work of His reign as the ruler of the kings of this world. Right. speaks of His kingdom. Right. And we don't want to divide Christ from His rule. He is, after all, the Lord Jesus Christ. So we can't, we can't look at Jesus and then try to understand Him in isolation from his kingdom. He is the king, and so he is bringing his kingdom to bear. And so, yes, while I believe that the stone, in some sense, stands for Jesus, it also points us to the reality of his kingdom, hence this growing of the stone into a mountain that covers the earth. And so what I want to explore is what this mountain tells us. Sermon title is Jingle Bell Rock of Ages, the stone that became a mountain. Here we are, face to face with this vision, and we are in perfect view of this vision that King Nebuchadnezzar has. I still am amazed the fact that God gives such insight to a pagan, right? To a pagan, a pagan king who is not in the faith yet, who is being introduced to the true and living God, and yet God chooses to give it to him. God can do whatever he wants. Right? It's his kingdom, it's his world, and he can reveal visions to whomever he pleases. And he chooses a proud king with a nasty temper and reveals it to him. Here's the plans that the Lord has to crush all of these kingdoms and to raise a king of his own. And so, what I want to see here is the various, and I would say several, proclamations that this stone that becomes a mountain makes. You know, we, we, we don't, I, I think the song sometimes is kind of obnoxious, even though the message is good, but we always sing it too loudly, go tell it on the mountain. I mean, this is exactly what we're being pointed to here. We are standing on this mountain even now, right? We have come to Zion. And so what is being proclaimed by Daniel? What is being proclaimed? And I just want to point out maybe two or three things this morning. We'll see what time allows for. But what is being proclaimed? And I want to say that the first thing is this, and I think it's the thing that, that sticks out first and foremost when this stone is introduced, is that the mountain proclaims to us God's distinction of His own kingdom. One of the first things we really find out about God is that He is other. He's different than us, right? We have have certain definitive, identifiable limitations that God does not have. He is different from us. And we are not Him, though we may try to be in our unbelief. We try to make ourselves like God, the original sin. But God here in this vision makes something very clear, is that the kingdom that He is going to set up and we know this from verse 44, in the days of those kings, that is, this will begin, this kingdom of God will begin in seed form during the Roman Empire. God, The God of heaven, that is, Yahweh, the true and living God, will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed, right? But it begins with this stone cut out without hands. Notice this, this stone that is cut out stands, stands separately from... This great statue, this great terrifying statue, that seems very imposing at first, and then it is knocked down from this stone cut out without hands. But that's the first thing God is doing that I think we have to understand, is that God's kingdom is different from man's kingdom. And ironically, the person who is ruling God's kingdom right now is a man, but not a mere man. It is the God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ. And He would have us know that He does not run His his kingdom like other men do. And so here we have disclosed to us the supernatural quality of God's kingdom. It is not merely natural. It is supernatural. We best remember that. And I think that's a great reminder, a very precious reminder. Every Christmas season, we are pointed to this amazing fact that God has intervened. He has inserted Himself into human history in the person of Jesus Christ. And with that work, He begins to build the kingdom of His beloved Son. It is clear that the Lord does things differently. And I think that, you know, as Christians living in 21st century America, we are not not immune to the temptation to completely forget at times the supernatural quality and nature, substance of the kingdom of Christ. We treat it as common as any other kingdom. We don't treat it as something that is going to ultimately subdue and conquer other kingdoms. We treat it as something that is weak and almost transitory. And and unfortunately, in some cases, the thought of the kingdom of Christ rarely enters our mind. Something very... Humorous came across uh, my desk, so to speak, this year. I never heard of it before, but apparently, men men specifically think about the Roman Empire at least once a day, and apparently, our wives are supposed to ask us that. Hey, have you thought about the Roman Empire today? And here's what I would wonder too. And and usually the answer is yes. I often think about the Roman Empire daily. But we should be thinking of the Roman Empire and all other empires as conquered foes. The question is, have you thought about the kingdom of Christ today? That's the question that is staring us in the face. It is the kingdom of Christ that is set up during the Roman Empire. It is the kingdom of Christ that has continued to endure. I think we see Scripture even being fulfilled in our present day, that the kingdom of Christ is growing. It is expanding. It is subduing and conquering. And yet, we treat it as something common. It's like, oh, well, the kingdom is it's invisible. It's so, so, out of sight, out of mind, right. we do the same thing We do the same thing to the Bible. We don't treat it like a supernatural book. We don't treat it like divine revelation. We treat it as like any other common book which is, which is really a sad indictment on our so-called Christian culture today because most of us don't even read. I mean, it's really sad, but we don't read our Bibles. Some of us may barely know the difference between the accomplishments of Christ and the accomplishments of Harry Potter. It's that sad of a condition that we're in. Some of you are like, who's Harry Potter? <laughs> but this is a reminder that God stands alone, God stands distinct, God stands unique. And yet, and yet, in that uniqueness, in that distinctiveness, He invades this world in all the power, grace, and glory that we ascribe to Him to utterly transform this world and bring all things under the feet of His Son. That is not common at all. That is not natural. That is... Supernatural. Different substance altogether. We understand it's supernatural in its origin. Talked about this stone cut out without hands, alluding to the the virgin birth. This king, this king did not come about by natural means, but by supernatural means. In Isaiah 7.14, we read, Therefore the Lord Himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call His name Emmanuel, which means... God with us. God will be with us in a mighty way. We see this fulfilled in the Gospels. In Luke 2.32, when Mary is visited by the angel, he says this, he will be great, speaking of Jesus, and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, clearly indicating That this child that is going to grow in your womb and you're going to give birth to is the king. He is the king. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. So Gabriel is using the same language there, this kingdom having no end, as Daniel is using to interpret this dream, this kingdom without end, this eternal kingdom. Mary said to the angel, "'How can this be since I am a virgin?' The angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child will be called the Son of God. Automatically pointed out, to, point, we're being pointed out to the supernatural working and intervention of God. This is beyond the natural. Right? This is not merely human, it is divine so it's supernatural in origin, but it's also supernatural in its effect. Remember, we're talking about here the kingdom of Jesus Christ. How, what do we mean when we say supernatural in its effect? Well, if we say that the king has a kingdom, we're also saying that this king will have subjects. Think about that distinctiveness. How are most subjects gained? Typically, through the power of the sword, some kind of political force, some kind of imposition of the will. Now, when it comes to God, we certainly have an imposition of His will. We call that His sovereign will. And yet, rather than destroying us, He saves us. So, supernatural in its effect, what is the effect of the kingdom? How does the kingdom advance? It advances through the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, that's how citizens are added to this kingdom. Even though Christ rules over all, His kingdom, is in, a, in a sense, speaks of its citizens. See, not merely by the sword of a man, but by the sword of the Spirit, which cuts to the quick where the Word of God is proclaimed when the gospel is preached and the Holy Spirit applies its saving power to us and brings dead men to life. So it's not merely natural in its effect. It does what only God can do. And that's what separates, makes His kingdom distinct from other earthly kingdoms. That's why we say as much as we are as a church involved in the political sphere, we are just as quickly to say that politics can't save you. Politics has no saving power whatsoever inherent in it. And yet we confront politicians. We tell them to repent. We tell them to believe the gospel. We tell them to worship Jesus Christ. But we understand that, that politicians, whether they are more pharisaical or completely pagan, we understand that they are only saved by the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit. The gospel must be preached to them. Politics can't save you, but Christ can. The King can. And we go on another. Here's another distinction supernatural in its reign, in its reign. We've kind of covered this, right? Not through the reign of a mere man, but the Lord Jesus, God in human flesh, that God is reigning through His Son. He is mediating His sovereign power through the kingship of His Son. I think we could extend that to supernatural in its rule, right? When we talk about rule, what inevitably accompanies that? Say it all the time. I want to live in a country where the rule of law is honored, right? And we see laws broken all the time, not only by the citizenry, but but especially our elected representatives. It's like we have no faith in anyone anymore. Yeah, forget politics, right? Can't tr- can't trust in our fellow man. We can't trust in our elected representatives. What is there? When we say, "Man, I wish there was the r- I wish the rule of law came to bear on our country," what are we even talking about? How do we understand the rule of law anyway? Whose rule? Whose law? Right. We don't want just any law. We want the law of God. But he provides this, and this is what makes it supernatural, right? We, the, 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 you got to understand, the laws, the precepts, the ordinances, the judgments that God gives, man could never dream up. And if he did, it would be on accident. <laughs> or God would reveal it to him. But we could, never, we could never think of these things in and of ourselves, only through divine revelation. But this is what makes it supernatural. It comes from God. Listen to what Jeremiah 31 says. And this is very important because this is the announcement of the new covenant. These are provisions of the new covenant. In verse 33, we read this, But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. Why would God write his law on our hearts? Well, among other re- many other reasons, so that we obey him. We don't obey him so that we are saved. We obey him because we are, sa- because we are saved, not so that we're saved. Right. This is grace at work. This is the new heart that is explained elsewhere by the Pro- prophet Ezekiel that God is giving His people a new heart. He is circumcising their hearts. He is drawing the the heart of His people to Himself so that we obey His commandments, so that we trust in His provision alone, so that we do not look to, to kings foreign or domestic, but we look to King Jesus. We look to see what His standard is. We look to Him so that His power rules in our lives, in our communities, and in our culture. Right. And what is, what is at the heart of this? What is, what is the law of God? Or we could say the law of Christ. Is that we love him with all that we are, and we love our neighbor as ourselves. We would say that's pretty simple, but it is impossible. It is utterly impossible to fulfill that apart from faith in Jesus Christ. That law is fulfilled by faith. Not through human effort, not through human wisdom, but through the power and wisdom of God but we live in the very reality of this right now as God's new covenant people. He has made every provision for this newness, not only to have a new heart, but a new way of life where we delight in His commandments and we are able to obey Him with joyful hearts. So in that sense, it is supernatural in its rule. Here's another one. Supernatural in its extent. You realize that all of these kingdoms that were mentioned in chapter 2 of Daniel, Babylon, Persia, Greece, Rome, all of them have certain limitations. That's why we have maps of them. We have maps detailing their geographical borders, right? None of these these kingdoms, no matter how majestic they were, no no matter what their military might, they eventually ran out of steam. They were eventually put down in a variety of ways, whether betrayal from within or conquering armies from without. Read, read uh, the decline and fall of the Roman Empire. You can read about the barbarian hordes that invaded. Eventually, the same fate fell, befell all of them. They were put down. They were overcome. Neither of the, none of these kingdoms lasted forever, and none of these kingdoms succeeded in expanding throughout the entire world. And yet, when we view the kingdom of Jesus Christ, we see that it is supernatural in terms of its extent over all the world. This kingdom that won't be destroyed, this kingdom that will not be left for another people, it will be put to an end. It will put an end of all these kingdoms, but it itself will endure forever. So it's not just limited geographically, it's, not, it's also not limited chronologically. And I think that's what we see too, even in history, right? We see the kingdom of Christ just expand, even though, even though in various places and in various cultures at various times, Christianity has been severely persecuted. I mean, bar none, Christianity has been the most persecuted religion in world history. But look where it started. Look where it started. We're dealing... With Christianity's humble beginnings, a timid band of apostles, right, cowering, right, what happened to Jesus? I thought this was going to, I thought, I think, you ever, you ever started a sentence like that? But I thought, ugh, usually expresses disappointment, expresses the fact that you were wrong about something. I would say that they were wondering the same thing, right? Read the Gospels. What does Peter say eventually? Yeah, I'm going fishing. <laughs> back back to the old life, Right? And then he sees Jesus walking on the shore. It's the Lord. Dives in the water, swims to shore. So overcome he is with joy. But that's how it started. And then Christ rose again and conquered the enemy of enemies, that is, death. And what was the likelihood that these humble beginnings would bloom and really explode over all the earth? Over the last two thousand years, to over two billion adherents, what was the likelihood? You know, we kind of we can we can look at that and chuckle, right? Man, it started with these guys, these noobs. What did they know, right? What did they know? They seemed so naive, with a weak faith, and yet, and yet, at Pentecost, God descended on them and used them mightily to proclaim the gospel. I mean, where was that? Where what, what happened to Peter? Suddenly he's this preacher, this fearless preacher, right? I mean, I think I've said, I've shared this before. I think one day, maybe hundreds of years from now, the church is going to look back and say, man, can you believe that there was one point in history where there were only 2 billion of us? I mean, it must have been so hard to be a Christian. Just 2 billion Christians? But that is the supernatural nature and extent of Christ's rule. Is it, it is advancing. And though the godless try to resist it, the gospel of Jesus Christ will overcome. It's inevitable. And we don't know all the ways of God and which, by which He will accomplish that, but we don't have to. We know the message. We have the truth. And we are simply sent out, as the apostles were, to proclaim it, to proclaim it with authority and accuracy and clarity. And boldly, that is the kingdom that we serve. That is the kingdom of which we are a part. And don't forget, this kingdom lasts forever, supernatural in its extent and duration. Will never be destroyed. Never be destroyed. Consider this. Uh, this verse comes up often from the Gospel of John, where Jesus is talking to Pilate, and Pilate's questioning him. And what does Jesus say? my kingdom is not of this world, if it were of this world, like yours is, Pilate, my servants would rise up and fight. And I bring this passage up because I don't want us to think for a second that Jesus is telling us somehow that my kingdom is only spiritual. It's only completely spiritual. It has nothing to do with this world or that it's not present in this world somehow. Jesus is not saying that. He's making a qualitative statement. He's telling Pilate that he does not do things the same way that this world does. His kingdom is of a different quality. It is distinct in its substance and power, and even in its the way that it conquers. He would not subdue kingdoms by uh, of this world by force, but by the power of his word. Right? And how is he conquering his enemies? We see him conquer his enemies primarily by granting them life in, his, in, in himself, by trading his life for theirs, and by making his enemies his friends. That's the good news of the gospel, that the kingdom of God in Christ has come upon us. And yet this king, this king that we call Jesus, has laid his life down for his enemies. He has conquered us by killing the old man and giving us life in himself. Not by killing us and keeping us dead. But to raising us to life in himself. I think that's what this passage means from the Gospel of John. Some people get all wrapped up into that. Why are you guys involved in your community? Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. It is precisely because Jesus' kingdom is not in this, of this world that we are involved in this world. Because Jesus' kingdom is of a completely different quality and And his kingdom is invading this world but he does not take over he does not conquer like the kingdoms of mere men do by force of arms which is the very point he's making because he says if it were of this world my servants would rise up and fight but that is not how Jesus is going to conquer he is conquering through the power of his gospel to raise dead men to life that's the gospel we preach and we read in 1 Corinthians 4.20 that the kingdom of God does not consist in words but in power, right? We have to guard ourselves from thinking that that when we preach the gospel that there is some kind of futility to it. But, they're, but they are mere words, right? But these are words of power. These are words that grant life to dead men. Remember that. Remember that today especially. That that babe we look at in a manger that we sing about is the same baby that would grow up to be the resurrected and ascended king lord of lords king of kings thinking about uh what is this song we're singing silent night right round yon virgin mother and child holy infant so tender and mild now we praise god that that's not the only verse we sing about jesus in this song you go down to the last verse son of God loves pure light radiant beams from thy holy face with the dawn of redeeming grace Jesus Lord at thy birth now we're talking now we have a fuller view of who this baby in a manger is born to be but he is Lord at his birth and at that name at that name of Lord every knee will bow and every tongue will confess But don't miss, friends, this distinction that Daniel provides us with. This mountain, this stone that becomes a mountain that fills the earth proclaims to us God's distinction of his own kingdom. Now that's the first thing. Here's number two. What else does the mountain proclaim? The mountain proclaims God's devotion to his son. I rarely hear this talked about from this passage, but I do believe it is one of the most important truths that we can draw from this. The mountain proclaims God's devotion to His Son, and I will use the Christmas venue, uh, Forest Bend, as an example here. I was actually thinking about this uh, this morning as I was getting my message together. So, I think it's multiple times per evening um, at Forest Bend. We gather in this barn, and um, the Christmas story is told. And the opening, uh, the opening question. Now, you guys can correct me if I'm wrong here. Is have you ever thought about? how much God loves you. I got that right, Amber? Have you ever thought about how much God loves you? Now, (laughs) most of us don't. Most of us don't. And if we're Christians and we're honest, we can barely fathom the depths of God's love for us, right? Sometimes we we can just stomach the fact of the matter, right? The truth proclaim that God gave up his son who died on a cross in our place so that we could be made right with him, that we could be reconciled. That is amazing love. Right. Even John marvels over it. Right. How, how, what was it? How, behold, behold what manner of love the Father has given unto us, that we would be called children of God or sons of God, and that is what we are. Imagine the depth of that love, that we would be sons of God. That is, we would stand to inherit the kingdom with Christ. Romans 5, 8 says something similar. God has demonstrated his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, right? We were just sinning. We were on a sin fest and we liked it. (laughs) In that while we were yet sinners, Christ what? Christ died for us, right? The point is Christ did not die for those who just loved him and cherished him and wanted to serve him. He died for people who hated him and rebelled against him. Have you ever considered how much God loves you? Okay, now, there's this question, it's an important question, but it stands against the backdrop of a more significant question, and they're connected, okay? Have you ever considered how much God loves his son? We hardly ever think about that. We think about how much God loves us, but have you ever thought about how much God loves Jesus Christ? One of the main reasons that that's so important is because Christ mediates God's love, right? So the love that we experience is going to be reflective of the love with which the Father bestows upon the Son. They got to be consistent, right? Got to come from somewhere. Have you ever thought about how much God loves his Son? I think we should because I think we see it in this mountain motif. Consider the grandeur of the kingdom, right? Consider God's zeal for his son's own rule, that he could not, that God loved his son and loved his son's glory so much that his son would have to stand alone, right? As king, as the only king, right? And all these other kingdoms with their kings had to be put down and blown away like useless chaff in the wind. That's how passionate that's how zealous God is for the glory of his son. That is how much the father loves his son. We see this in Daniel chapter 7 verse 14. You have to turn there but just listen to this verse. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the people's nations and men of every language might serve him. So within the purview of God's love and favor toward his son, he desired to give him a people a kingdom, a dominion. He once, he considered his son worthy of having other image bearers pay homage to him, worship him, serve him, trust him, love him. All peoples over all the earth, hence the mountain filling to become, to cover the whole earth. That no nation, no people would be untouched By God's love and by the glory of His Son's kingdom, that everyone might serve Him. Psalm 45, 6, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. This is Psalm 45, 6. It is quoted to refer to Christ and this kingdom that is, this throne that is given to Him in the opening chapter of the book of Hebrews, which also says in chapter 1 that Jesus is the radiance of Of His glory and the exact representation of His nature. So when we when we learn about this unity between Father and Son, after all Jesus did say, "I and the Father are one." If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. We come to understand that the Son has the same prerogatives as the Father, the same rights. They share this. Do a a biblical survey of this. The Son shares the same honors, attributes, names, deeds, and even the very seat as the Father. Jesus is God. Jesus is the Son of God. And so, when the Father looks upon His Son, there is only unspeakable joy and delight. It's the perfect, the absolutely, infallibly perfect, viewing the absolutely, infallibly perfect. The Father delights in the Son. Where do you think love comes from? It has to be sourced somewhere And it is sourced in God. And it's and here we are, we're trying to just really scratch the surface of the infinite well of divine love. We're able to understand it in such a way because of what Jesus has done for us. But it doesn't begin with us, it begins between Father and Son. This really an intra-trinitarian relationship where love is perfect and unfathomable and infinite and yet we see that on display even if it's only a glimpse in jesus christ but we experience it in light of the fact that the father loves his son and he sets his supreme favor and delight upon jesus who is a man so we should start to kind of just, kind of you follow the trail, right? You follow the breadcrumbs, follow this golden thread, right? He has set his favor upon a man. And so God's favor to his son, in through his son, he is able to set his favor upon the rest of mankind. We've talked about, we, 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 we meditate on that this morning. And on earth, peace, goodwill toward men. That's what Christmas points us to. That's what the birth of the Messiah points us to. That throughout the world, God would set His favor upon men in a new way, and He could do that precisely because that very love would be set upon His Son, and and that love would be mediated through His Son to us. And though God loves His Son immeasurably, infinitely, He punishes His Son on our behalf for but a moment so that we could come to experience the fullness and abundance of the eternal life that He gives us. That's good news. That's the good news of the kingdom. God loves His Son. And so where's the application for us? Well, we must love what God loves. We must delight in what God delights in. We must devote ourselves to what God devotes Himself to. And if the Lord Jesus is the Father's object of supreme love and devotion, so the Lord Jesus Christ must be the, the object of our supreme love and devotion. And this is the provision of the gospel. Don't forget this. The gospel not only makes us right with God, it not only reconciles us to Him, but it reorients all of our affections. Right. Some of us look back and we, we are aghast at the things we loved before. Right? We can't believe what we wasted our time on, what we loved, what we thought we couldn't live without all these idols that we had built up it's so and now they're worthless it was so funny i was in walmart a couple days ago and uh, i saw <laughs> i meant to send this picture out but i but but um, sitting on top of the candy bars was and actually set it on the wrapping it was two hindu idols it was like a ganesh idol the big elephant god I kid you not idol it was a $1.50 it was a $1.50 yep idols the idols of man indeed are worthless a dollar 50 i mean really what is a dollar 50 worth you know what i can get for a dollar 50 the candy bar it was sitting on top of and it would <laughs> it would give me much more happiness but i love the fact that yeah that's an idol that's a worthless god it's so worthless it's so insignificant you can get it for a buck 50 the price of a candy bar at walmart i love it Love to see things like that. And yet the value of Christ to us is infinite, beyond measure, beyond payment. And our affections are reoriented toward Him so that we love Him above all other things. Hebrews 1 declares, let all the angels worship Him. right? Let all the angels, let let all of creation, man or angel, worship Him. Even Paul goes as far as to say, whoever does not love the Lord, let him be accursed, right? You don't just a just a straight, clear statement. If you do not love the Lord, let let that person be accursed. Let them be anathema. We are called as saints to love the Lord Jesus Christ above all other things. Here is what we have too. In light of this revelation, we have the likeness, right? The likeness, a standard, if you will, to which God is conforming us. We don't often think of the love of God in that context of standards, that God is conforming us to something. That every Christian, every saint right now sitting in this room, you could be the most ridiculous, unstudied, unschooled, naive Christian, but if you are truly regenerated in Christ, guess what? You are going to be conformed to Him. You are going to be conformed to Christ. You are going to be glorified. You will be made perfect. And what that means is this, something like this, is that you will be made as much like God without actually being God. You will not be divine, but you will be conformed to the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. You will be as much like that whom God cherishes the most. I think we fail to be amazed by that. Wow. The person whom God the Father cherishes and cherishes, delights in the most provides the same standard to which we will be conformed, which we're all headed, God is conforming us to the image of His Son so that we will be faithful image bearers that God has always designed us to be. Listen to 2 Corinthians 3.18. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord the Spirit. Going old school here is a wonderful quote from John Piper. You and I know from experience that the root conflict in the human soul is between two glories. Listen to this: the glory of the world and all the brief pleasures it can offer, versus the glory of God and all the eternal pleasures it can offer. These two glories compete for allegiance, admiration, and the delight of our hearts. Think about that: allegiance, loyalty, admire—you know, like the things you just you swoon over. You think about, you look to, and delight translation, what makes you happy? What makes you feel fulfilled? What makes life worth living? And the delight of our hearts. Now think about that. I'm going to pause quote here, but think about that. The Christmas tree, right? The glorious, beautiful Christmas tree that's in your house every Christmas season. I think that's a good thing. I think the gifts under the tree are a good thing. It all depends on your point of view, right? Are those gifts meant to stand the, to take the place of the devotion that we, and delight that we have in Christ, are, parents, are you using that as an instrument for your kids so you can draw your eyes to the even great, so they can draw their eyes to the even greater gift of Christ, or are you using that as a replacement? Right. That's the question. You want to bless your kids with gifts? You want to bless your kids with that sweet red rider air rifle with the compass in the stock and that thing that tells time, right? or that new bike, or that sweet PlayStation that they play nonstop around the clock. If you want to bless your kids with that, you have your liberty in Christ. Amen, right? These are good things. But are you forgetting to point them to the greater glory? That this is just a shadow of the real thing. That's that's the test every year, really. But I digress. Listen to this. I'll say it again. These two glories compete for the allegiance, admiration, and delight of our hearts. And the role of preaching is to display and depict and portray and exhibit the glory of God in such a way that its superior excellence and worth shine in your heart so that you are changed from one degree of glory to another, right? So we see a process in this, and yet we want to be aware of it, palpably aware of it, that we are being transformed as we see this mountain grow and conquer the world we want to make sure that we are being conformed to the image of god's son his precious son this is expressed as my this devotion to his own son is expressed beautifully in psalm 2 i mean i think jeremy you probably read this passage more than most psalm 2 i will tell you of the decree of the lord he said to me you are my son today i have begotten you ask of me and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. Now this psalm is a messianic psalm, we understand, looks forward ultimately to the the lordship and reign and rule of Christ, his rule over the nations, that all kings, all so-called rulers are meant to come and bow the knee to kiss the son, to, to love him, to put their trust in him, lest they perish in the way. But don't miss this. Ask of me and I will give the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. What if this weren't in view, right? Christ deserves as much. But think about this. This is where the love of God, I think, comes in, where we really see it on display. What if the Father did not delight in giving the Son an inheritance of nations? What if it was God's delight to just completely eradicate all rebels? Oh, that's us. Oh, no. That means we're in trouble. And yet, God's love toward His Son is such that, the, that His inheritance, His gift to His Son includes us as His subject, as His people, as His sheep. Right? A gift to Christ, our Lord, our King, our Good Shepherd. Right? He's, even, he's even described as our elder brother. Right? We have a faithful elder brother. We have a faithful high priest, So by God giving this gift of the earth as his possession, this dominion, this kingdom that will be without end, it includes our redemption. That is why we do not want to miss the connection between God's love for his son and God's love for us. If there is no love for his son, there is no real love for us. Right? So once again, deserves to be said, friends, It's not about you. His love is for us, but it's not, it's not about us. It's always been about the Father's love and devotion and affection toward his son. And because of that, we are able to experience it. Isaiah 42, 1 through 2. Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. See, not only are the nations going to be his inheritance. But there is a specific plan for those nations, right? The Lord Jesus is not content for the nations to run, to run amok. He will bring justice. He will bring righteousness. And yes, this will happen over a long period of time. And as, but how will he accomplish, accomplish it? Through the proclamation of the gospel. That is where this justice, that is where this righteousness will come from. Now, how do we know this is talking about Jesus? Go to Matthew 3. Verse 16, it says, After being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were open, and he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and lighting on him. And behold, a voice out of the heaven said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Right. There was no mistaking the identity of Jesus here. God himself proclaimed it. This is the servant foretold from Isaiah 42, and it is being fulfilled in your hearing at the baptism of Christ. In Matthew 17, on the Mount of Transfiguration, when Jesus shines forth brightly as the sun, a voice from heaven calls out, this is my beloved son, listen to him. Right, Hear his voice. Right, Hear the voice of the shepherd, which we do today. Right. Now, more in the gospel from John 3.35, the father loves the son and has given all things into his hand, right? That is an expression of, of the Father's love toward the Son, is this gift of all things, right? That's why Jesus, before he ascends to heaven in Matthew 28, can say, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And then what do we listen to? Well, we listen to what he says after that, go therefore, right? As disciple the nations, baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teach them everything I have commanded you, and I am with you when you go out into this mission. John 5.20, for the Father loves the Son and shows Him all things that He Himself is doing, and the Father will show him greater works than these so that you will marvel. And I I, I would hope we would take that home as an application today. When was the last time you marveled over something God had done? When was the last time we can simply just stand amazed, right? We sang about it, let all mortal flesh keep silent. There are times to give a shout of rejoicing, and then there are times where we just simply shut up, right? Let's just not talk right now. Let us consider The grandeur of what God has done for us. Let us consider the grandeur of what Christ is showing to us. How would we be able to recognize the works of the Father unless Christ revealed those works to us? This is exactly what John 5.20 alludes to. But the Father loves the Son. And and the expression of that love is that He has shown Him, that is Jesus, all the things that He Himself is doing. How are we to unlock that mystery? Well, Christ has to show it to us. And He does. So that the love that the Father has for the Son is mediated. It is demonstrated. It is shown. It is experienced to us and by us. But it is because the Father's love for the Son is so great. Have you ever thought about how much the Father loves the Son? You ever thought about how much the Father loves Jesus? Well, we should. Because in that we find the very foundation and source of God's love for us. Behold what manner of love the Father has given to us that we should be called sons of God. See, all that we receive from God was initially promised to Jesus. We, in, in Jesus, we see the Father's favor. right? All of His promises of an inheritance, of land, of a family, of subjects, of a kingdom, all of that. Now, remember in Scripture, all these things are proclaimed to Abraham in seed form. To Abraham, all these things were promised. And a son born by supernatural means, pointing us ultimately to the supernatural birth of Christ. But these are in seed form. But what do we find out in Galatians, right? Seed singular. When it says seed, it refers to one that is Christ. And so all who trust in Christ, this is us, this is saints. All who trust in Christ are Abraham's seed heirs according to the promise. And so we experience these promise these promises as an expression of God's love mediated to us through the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean that's 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 the love, right? So you see the connection there. We understand God's love for us all the more fully when we are able to at least gaze for a while and grasp at the immense love that he has for his son and I had a third point this morning which stems from that but hey we got through two two things to, to walk away with and really think about regarding the, this this stone cut out without hands right that grows into a mountain that fills the whole earth we get a glimpse of the distinctiveness, the uniqueness, the special nature of God's kingdom in Christ. And of course, we have a picture of God's love and devotion for His Son and to see Him glorified among the nations. And if we were to wish and continue praying for one thing, especially in light of this Christmas season, may that be it. So with that, let's adjourn for today. Bow our heads in prayer. Oh, Father, thank You again. Thank You again for Your Word. We thank You, Lord, that we serve a King who rules over a kingdom, a different kingdom. One full of truth and justice. One which brings salvation to the ends of the earth. One that is not won by human merit, but by divine accomplishment. One that gives us not man's wisdom, but divine truth. And on and on. Lord, help us see the uniqueness, the the preciousness and value of Your kingdom this morning as we celebrate the birth of our Savior, as we sing praise songs to Him, may we call that to mind. Lord, may we grasp the immensity of the love that You have for Your Son and through Him we experience that love as well. That because You love Him, we love Him. Because You desire to see Your Son glorified among the nations, we desire to see Him glorified among the nations. Oh God, help us to see that. Help us to meditate on it. Help us to see Your Son as precious. And to not be caught up in the idolatry and false worship of all these other things, but that we would see every good and perfect gift is coming from You that whatever we receive, even in the context of Christmas, we can rejoice and declare that You are good. That we can rejoice and declare that Your Son is the most precious gift of all. Lord, we cannot do that without Your help, without the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. But I pray, God, that we would not have such a low view of Your kingdom, that we would not have such a low view of Your Son, that we would not get so easily distracted by things that are corruptible and break down with time. May we instead shift our eyes to the enduring and eternal nature of Your kingdom and the enduring rule of Your Son. We thank You, God, that by faith we are a part of that kingdom, that we have been transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of Your beloved Son in which You have set us on a high place where though we may be assailed by the enemy, we are secure because of what Christ has done for us. Father, receive our worship with joyful hearts, and may you be blessed by the gathering of the saints today. In Christ's precious name we pray. Amen.
1: If there is any question, Brian is indeed back. Confirmed. Merry Christmas, church. Let's uh, bow our heads and pray together. Heavenly Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three in one and one in three, you are truly amazing. And it is just a joy to be able to be here, not only in this current time, unmolested, worshiping together, but able to worship you truly in spirit and in truth. Um, You are perfect in power and glory. You're not like Allah, you're not like the God of Mormonism, you're the one and only true sovereign and creator, and yet, sinful man, rebellious, transgressed your law, your perfect will, you deigned to enter into your own creation, all the while suffering no change in and of yourself, eternally having been and eternally remaining the Trinity's second person, the Son. You didn't grasp at your prerogative. You emptied yourself of those prerogatives and took on the form of truly man and a reasonable soul. It is amazing, that mystery of your incarnation, perfect life that you lived and did the thing that we could not do. And died the death that we deserved Um, that we can be in your presence clothed in the righteousness of christ it's truly amazing and what a what a hefty price to pay weighty but such was your forgiveness that you even offered forgiveness to those whom you chose who crucified you and the only things that we can bring to Christ and lay at his feet, are our transgressions, God's character and perfect will. And praise be to Christ that he is not only our prophet, priest, and king, but he is also the spotless sacrifice brought forth at the proper time to accomplish that redemption. We praise you, God, the price of our sin is only paid in your spilled blood, and we give you all the glory and praise your glorious name. pray in the name of Christ, amen.
0: All right well I trust you've uh, prepared your hearts this morning for the lord's table and uh, again what a what a joyous occasion to to spend uh, basically our christmas eve worship service together to to consider afresh that reality that when jesus was born so began this you could say god fulfilling his promises to bring this long-awaited-for new covenant where we could approach the throne of grace through our great high priest, our Lord Jesus Christ, that we could come under the blood, as it were, His blood shed on our behalf and consider our fellowship together, the numerous benefits and graces He gives us, among them the forgiveness of sins. That is something that we can rejoice in together today that as a corporate body, as the body of Christ, Our sins are forgiven. We have been washed in the blood of the Lamb. And God does not hold our sins against us. And that is cause for praise and worship. So, if you are here today and you have trusted in Christ alone, and you have expressed that publicly in baptism, please uh, come to the table. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which He was betrayed, took bread... And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's remember him together. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's Proclaim his death together. Amen. Thanks everyone for being here today. Um, if you need any prayer or counsel, if you need to hear the gospel preached again, uh, Jeremy and I will be up here to be available uh, for you all. Um, food in the back, so please stay for fellowship. We'd love to have you. Um, our benediction comes from 1 Timothy chapter 3. By common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. He who is revealed in the flesh was vindicated in the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. And all God's people said, Amen.
2: There we go. Okay, yeah, we just have a special message. Um, we do believe in preaching and evangelizing here, amen? Like, Yeah, absolutely. And so, um, you know, one thing that was laid upon our hearts, and hopefully... Macy's watching the live stream right now, is that to help them out, I guess they've fallen on incredibly hard times, and you know, we wanna do the best thing we can to help people out, so. um, Macy, if you wouldn't mind coming forward. Hopefully you're watching the live stream too right now. It's come to our attention that you were locked out of your credit card and needed money to pay for bills. You're not? So you mean that this person that I'm speaking to on your messenger isn't you? Okay, well, hopefully they're watching the live stream like I asked them to right now. Um, so we're going to pray for you guys, for your phone getting hacked, and for your hacker friend. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we pray that whoever has hacked Macy's phone, who is asking for money, Lord, that you would provide them significantly and abundantly in every way possible. And Lord, more importantly, they'd realize that thieves do not inherit the kingdom of God. And Lord, that we pray that, that Macy's phone is quickly restored. And, Lord, what a blessing it would be um, for this person to come to Christ, to evangelize this center, whatever they're working in, to take money and steal from people during a season which really should be a a season about giving. Lord, that you would uh, do that to them, convict them, Lord, of their sin, bring them to repentance, and confess you as their Lord and Savior. In Jesus' name, amen.